This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is part of a long series on how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 3. A few months ago, I produced a story about the Ad Council. The organization behind McGruff the Crime Dog, the Crash Test Dummies, and Smokey the Bear. I mean, excuse me, Smokey Bear. No, the... They produced a campaign that spanned decades to promote religion in the U.S. as a way of fighting communism. My guest for that episode was Wendy Melillo, author of How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America, a history of iconic ad council campaigns. I've gotten in the habit of asking my guests if they have anything else they'd like to talk about, you know, something I may have missed. So we reached the end of the interview, and she casually dropped this nugget. Let me know if you want to talk about the Peace Corps, because I wasn't able to get the Peace Corps in my book, but I recently have just published an article about, two articles about the Peace Corps. So let me know if you're interested in that, if that helps you with what you're trying to do. The Peace Corps, I mean, maybe you're as confused as I was. She and I were just talking about the American ad campaigns designed to fight communism. What did the Peace Corps have to do with communism? I couldn't help but follow the bunny trail. The Peace Corps' mission has its roots in, again, a foreign policy initiative to stem and thwart the rise of communism in third world countries. The Peace Corps, for anyone who doesn't know, is a U.S. government program started in 1961 whose goal is three parts, according to their website to help promote the people of interested countries in meeting their needs for training men and women, to help promote a better understanding of Americans on the part of the people served, to help promote a better understanding of other peoples on the part of Americans. Basically, they train and deploy American goodwill ambassadors. Wendy studied the Ad Council campaigns to promote the Peace Corps. According to her, they also came about as a foreign policy initiative to stem and thwart the rise of communism in third world countries. And so what I studied was I took a look at the advertising messages in the Peace Corps advertising campaign. Now, why would I care about this? Well, again, this was another campaign that was sponsored by the Ad Council. And I looked at it between 1961 and 1970. And what were those messages that would get people to volunteer, to become Peace Corps volunteers? And what was fascinating was in no part of the messaging ever mentioned the word communism. But if you look at some of the historical and internal documents, President Kennedy at the time was very, very concerned about developing countries as they pulled away from colonial empires would then be influenced to become, you know, a communist country. So the United States used its goodwill ambassadors to spread the American way as a method of encouraging developing countries to adopt a Western political model. 
not through spying or intelligence gathering, but by, you know, digging wells and launching educational programs. Hopefully, nudging leaders in those countries away from communism. You know, we were we were fighting what we call a soft war, all right? Not a hot war. Um, you know, the Cold War's going on. We, we're not going to have an actual war, but we're going to use persuasive communication to convince people that our, you know, way of life is the better way of life. According to Wendy, the Peace Corps manual didn't tell volunteers that this was their mission. Neither did the advertising. But the mission was there, in the background. At the end of World War II, some powerful empires divested themselves of their colonies. There are too many examples to provide an exhaustive list. But think of Pakistan and India gaining independence from Britain in 1947. Or Congo finally on its own when Belgium stepped away in 1960. Let's stop and look at Congo. The Eisenhower administration wanted a pro-Western government to take over. Stability on the African continent. Now, why would we want that? I mean, it's kind of a basic question, right? A pro-Western government means a few things. Possible U.S. military bases in Congo. Access to precious natural resources. A democratic bastion on the continent. Also, and maybe this is the most important one, Congo could stem the rise of communism. I've said this a few times this season, but it's kind of tempting to be like, communism? Our parents and grandparents were so stupid to worry about that. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you, but it was. By 1960, communism was already in China, Albania, Bulgaria, Poland, Hungary, Yugoslavia, North Vietnam, North Korea, Laos, Cuba, and many other places. It really looked like this radical economic model could take over the world. With the Belgians seemingly out of the way, the U.S. hoped for peace in Congo, in Africa in general. It's a long story and I can't get into it today, but over decades, the United States found itself doing everything it could to fight the spread of communism. And not just in Africa. We literally fought wars in countries like Korea and Vietnam. We also participated in ghost wars, also known as proxy wars, equipping rebels through back channels in Afghanistan, Nicaragua, and Angola. All the while, the U.S. was engaged in battles for hearts and minds on a global scale. Using things like the Peace Corps, which sounds sinister and all, but remember, communist countries were doing this too. Another tool was American media. Radio, TV, movies. We exported a lot of it. That's why some people thought it was so important that messages coming out of Hollywood be pro-American, no communist undertones. We were fighting a war for hearts and minds, not just at home, but abroad too. Movies and volunteer organizations were not the only marketing tools used to spread the American way of life. So was the American church. We were already sending missionaries to the far reaches of the globe. Why not spread the gospel and Uncle Sam 
at the same time. Liberal Christians tie their faith to the U.S. through the New Deal and the social gospel. Libertarian Christians tied their religion to capitalism and patriotism through public displays of piety like ad campaigns and public prayers. We were used to marrying the U.S. and Christianity. But our effort to export that alloy sometimes got us in trouble, making the gospel difficult to accept when paired with global politics. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce. Before we really get going, this episode is going to examine some of the darker sides of missions work. Nothing perverse or inappropriate, just convicting. Missions are an important part of the Christian church. It's the way we spread the gospel and take care of people's physical needs in other countries. Just because we're evaluating missions does not mean I'm against them. Are we cool with that? Okay, let's get to the story. As European countries divested themselves of their African colonies, as empire became a liability, American Christianity sought ways to spread American culture. Critics claimed that we were expanding our empire not by taking countries over, but by growing our military presence and planting our culture in the hearts of those abroad. Now, aren't you glad to see that all that empire stuff we talked about back in the spring is finally paying off and the whole Christian nation thing? It's all right here. See, I do plan this stuff out. Our guide today is Melanie McAllister. She's a professor of American Studies and International Affairs at George Washington University and the author of the excellent book, The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, A Global History of Evangelicals, since 1945. Okay, so it's the 1950s and 60s, and the United States wants to export Americanism to Africa and South America. But there are some problems. For one, people on those continents are generally, I mean, forgive me if this seems obvious, not white. American evangelical denominations sent white missionaries because many denominations did not support non-whites in the field. Now, remember, we're talking the 1950s and 60s. What was going on then back in the US? Black people were under Jim Crow laws and racial tensions were in overdrive. Here is Melanie. So this is a very interesting story, in part because evangelicals in some way reproduce a larger problem of American foreign policy in this period. This is an issue for the U.S. in the Cold War overall. It's 1958 or 1963, and the U.S. is trying to um, make a play for the loyalties of African and Asian and Latin American nations vis-a-vis the Soviet Union in the Cold War. The Soviet Union is making hay with the fact that people are being 
water cannoned and um, attacked in the streets of the South in the U.S. for the civil rights movement, saying, how could any, why would any nation want to be your ally if they are a nation of people of color when they see how you treat people of color at home? And American policymakers understood this to be a real problem. Soviet propaganda played up our persecution of people of color in the United States. I covered this in an episode titled Godless Utopia, if you want more information. Missionaries out in the field with organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention picked up on how this national sin was impacting their ability to witness. And one of my favorite quotes in the book is from an American white missionary to South Africa writing about the problem that he saw as other missionaries having um, also racist behavior in the field, not just what's going on at home, but that they, he saw American missionaries behaving in racist ways in the field. And he says, how can you expect to invite people to the Lord's table when you won't allow them to sit at your own? Some white missionaries, not all, some, coming from the U.S. did not allow black people to eat with them. They could work as servants or meet together in public, but not become friends because the U.S. was wrapped up in Jim Crow laws. When Americans crossed the ocean, some, not all, brought Jim Crow with them, hoping to share the good news about Jesus, but also to separate the races, which is just, well, sometimes there just aren't adequate words. We were exporting not only Christ and the American way, but also our American racism. Now that wasn't all. There was also a gap between the way that American missionaries lived in comparison to their surroundings. Missionaries did understand that they were living much less well than the people in their churches at home. Right? For them as Americans, they're coming from, you know, suburban Wisconsin or, uh, you know, some part of LA or wherever, and they, people at home have dishwashers and, you know, modern appliances and all of this stuff, and they're going to places where they don't have even necessarily good health care, they can't get um, the foods that they're used to, they're living in ways that are difficult for them. Your church back home is filled with people who have nice cars, running water, indoor plumbing, and smooth roads. When you get to some of these places, you may not have those niceties readily available. This is the era of tiny little bungalow homes, dinner on the table at 5 p.m. when daddy gets home from the office, and a Buick in every driveway. Some missionaries, not all, carry that mentality with them into poorer countries. They do not appreciate that the distinction between how they live and how other people around them live causes so much resentment. It's not that they don't understand that there is a very real distinction. And in fact, they are putting it out in some ways as, you know, the benefits of Christianity is that you become more modern. If you become more modern, you know, you'll have better stuff because that's part of what people were promoting often was the notion of Christianity as a kind of modernizing uh, influence. Not a new concept. That's how it's been sold for literally hundreds of years. Join Christianity and you'll be modern, up to date. God wants you to be current, wealthy, and prosperous. It's one of the reasons Russia adopted Orthodox Christianity over other world religions. It opened up trade and access to modern goods. We covered that 
last winter. Having modern conveniences in the mission field created an us-and-them situation. After an evangelism service, Christian missionaries went back to their above-average houses with indoor toilets, while the locals went to smaller homes that may not have had many luxuries at all. When I talk about the uprising in Congo and the independence movement and the resentment that people felt towards missionaries was multiple. But part of it was this sense that people were living at, a, at an entirely different level um, in terms of the kind of houses they were in. And of course, they got they did get food packages and other things from home. And so they had access to things that people there did not. And they lived um, differently. Again, this episode is not about attacking missionaries. Those people have to put up with a lot of deprivation, being away from family and friends. The degrading process of going from church to church to beg for money every year. Our insistence on numbers. The expectation to look sufficiently poor, but also sufficiently happy. But between the racism and the classism, there was an opportunity to plant bitterness toward the gospel and the American way in the hearts of the people who they were supposed to be reaching. Yeah, missionaries are really interesting figures, I think, in part because they are so in between and they serve as a great way of thinking even more broadly outside of Christian history, but just more broadly about um, Americans overseas or the kind of ways in which people who live between uh, the worlds of American power and American empire and the worlds where Americans are going and they operate those intersections and they show the contradictions often in their lives because they are right there at the seam between the most powerful and wealthy country the world has ever known and often some of the poorest people in the world. In short, we put missionaries into some tight places. So far, we've talked about the stuff we export when we tie the U.S., to our faith. So what do we import? What do we take back to America? Now, I don't know about you, but aside from the research for this episode, I didn't know much about Congo. The people, the culture. I'm almost ashamed to say it, but the whole of my knowledge came from Michael Crichton's book, Congo, a fictional story about gorillas that bash people's heads in. Don't read it. It's not great. And the movie is even worse. Aside from making me think twice about gorillas, I didn't know a lot. So, as a Christian in the church, I'm reliant on missionaries to provide context. I talk about in the chapter on Congo, the fact that there were Congolese Christians who were very angry. One person comes to the U.S., he's a Methodist, and he comes to the U.S. and he's at some kind of Methodist conference and he sees missionaries showing pictures of Africa to the congregation to try to raise some money for the work they were doing and to educate people about what was going on. And he stormed out of the meeting furious because he said, it's 1957 and they are showing pictures of Africa in the 1920s. This is not, we are a modern country and we are poor for sure in many places, but this is not the world we live in anymore. And they are um, telling a story about our poverty and abasement really in order to raise money for their work that he was furious about. And you can see that up to today. I mean, this is something that, you know, even an organization like World Vision struggles with, secular organizations struggle with, with how they 
draw upon both, you know, happy, smiling children and the sense of people as um, desperately poor, not really talking about the ways in which people in local context are also making their own solutions to things. They need support or allies, but they don't need someone to come in and rescue them. They instead need to be working side by side with people. And even though many churches know that and talk about that, fundraising seems to have not made much uh, progress in many ways in the last 70 years. I am not saying that we need to stop displaying pictures of smiling kids in tattered clothing or children picking through a garbage dump like a missionary to Kenya showed at my church recently. Because those things are real. But we have to consider messages that we're spreading here in the U.S. because they do shape how Americans think of people in other countries, which, in turn, changes what we export back to them. If we see the entire population of a country as destitute, it may encourage us to think that they can't govern themselves. Our concept of who people are changes how we respond to them. When we come back from the break, have you ever gone to a poor country and come back feeling that maybe those people over there are closer to God? We'll examine that impulse and more when we return. Stay with us. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back. There is a lot to consider when you're talking about missionaries. Have you ever gone on a short-term mission, maybe to build a house or dig a foundation? How were the people there? Were they friendly? Did the kids come over and smile and hug you? One sticky trap we fall into is thinking that other cultures are somehow always happy, or that they are closer to God than we are. That, too, can negatively impact the way we interact with them. In her book, Melanie calls it enchanted internationalism. I found it historically, but I looked, it it emerged out of my research on short-term missions. And when I first started researching the book, I went to Egypt, but with a group from InterVarsity, and they were working with South South Sudanese refugees in Cairo. So I was there on a short-term mission with them. And I saw these young people who I think it's quite clear in the book who I liked a lot and thought very highly of, but they were so um, deeply trying to do the right thing with the South Sudanese that they were working with, but so 
uh, romanticizing and enraptured by the idea of these cross-cultural connections. And they so wanted to believe that the Southern Sudanese were more spiritual, more in tune with the world, with the earth, with the planet than they were. They saw it as a way of, um, you know, criticizing themselves and American materialism, and you know that was all right. But you could see the kind of exoticizing that was happening um, over and over again in the ways that they were talking about and engaging the South Sudanese. I remember one of the girls was telling me about having listened to the South Sudanese who really wanted to go home, they were refugees after all in Cairo, talk about where they were from and how much they wanted to go home. And she just said to me kind of a sigh, oh, it must be the most beautiful place in the world. And this was 2006. At this time, South Sudan was one of the most war-torn and impoverished places on the planet. But that wasn't part of how she could understand what they were dealing with. And, you know, she was avoiding kind of seeing them as impoverished and seeing them as abject, but it was the kind of opposite end of that spectrum and sort of then seeing them as romantic and exotic. You'll hear this from Christians on short-term missions today, that people in whatever country you visit are closer to God than people in the United States. They smiled, they shook hands, they visited. In the minds of locals, maybe they're just being good hosts. But we sometimes interpret those signs of friendliness as evidence that people are always happy. Yeah, I talk about this as kind of um, uh, drive-by interpretation, you know, where people are going to a country for two weeks often if they're going on a short-term mission, but sometimes even longer trips, and they see and they're engaged in an encounter where the folks they are visiting and the churches or the orphanages or the villages, wherever it is they're going, the cities, are being kind to them and generous and welcoming. But they then extrapolate that to say, isn't it amazing? You know, they're so poor, but they're always happy. And that is, de that is a dehumanizing behavior, really, because it implies that here's a person who, you know, I would really mind being poor, but they don't seem to mind. One danger is that we see people who are poor and assume that they're cool with it because they're friendly. I know that may seem like splitting hairs, but it's critical that we consider that assumption. What if they're actually sad or angry? What if they're being oppressed by someone and we just don't know it? That matters because if an uprising starts or there's a protest to fight corruption, we might think, that's not the Congo I remember. Everyone was so happy there. This must be a group of extremists. Surely not everybody feels like this. How sure are we that we can understand a people based on a two-week guided trip? You know, you see this, this is not just a Christian problem. If anybody that I teach at a university and dealing with students who go on semesters abroad, you often find, or you know, two weeks for spring break trips or whatever, you find similar kinds of issues where if you don't have long-term sustained relationships, you aren't trained to think about the inequalities that you're both going to see but also participate in, um, you, then you come back with a very stunted sense of the world. 
And so I'm very impressed by some um, evangelical organizations that have worked quite hard to try to handle some of these issues, to train students to think a little bit more deeply about inequality globally and their own place in it, and not just kind of compulsively try to make sense out of things that they don't have the background to understand. And that's not just for short trips. Long-term missionaries encountered the same issues, where they thought that bringing in their assumptions about capitalism and Americanism would improve the lives of the people they were ministering to. One example that Melanie wrote about in her book was that of a missionary who tried to teach women in a village how to be better at time management. In an American household, we don't just throw a load of laundry into the machine and watch it spin. Use that time to clean the floors or go grocery shopping. That's time management. Stop there. Now, who is sharing this information? A Christian missionary, right? That's important because she's there trying to witness to the people. Is time management the same as the gospel? No. Because of who is saying the message, it does then get tied to the gospel. Is time management necessarily a bad thing? No. But it is a sign of Americanism, our work ethic, sneaking into the mission field. Now, why is that a problem? It's just efficiency, right? Well, the people group from this example had no concept of time. Like literally, they didn't use watches, clocks, or whatever to coordinate their day. So there was a danger that when people thought of the gospel, they would also think of the American sense of time management, our work ethic, our busy, busy, busy attitude, our focus on productivity, and possibly because we are so focused on doing, conflate salvation and works. Accidentally preach a works-based theology, a time management-based theology, instead of salvation as a free gift. Do you see that? It's not to say that missionaries need to walk on eggshells or do nothing but preach, but it's vital that we understand what is being coupled with Christianity in the minds of people who hear the gospel. So, in the 1950s and 60s, American missionaries traveled to countries populated mostly by black and brown people to preach salvation available to all, which looked a little strange when the U.S. was under Jim Crow laws. No doubt it looks strange now after all these years when minorities are protesting in the streets of quote-unquote Christian America. We were and are sending mixed messages to Africa and Latin America. God loves you. You are a part of the global church. But we don't have to treat you like we treat white Christians. We Christians are exporters, plain and simple. We are under the Great Commission, which obligates us to take the good news about Jesus to all tribes and tongues. But as we've seen, we need to be aware of what goes along with it. And that's difficult. The modern American church is so cozy in its relationship to the United States, so comfortable with our comfort, which means that sometimes our Americanism travels with the gospel. Like the Peace Corps volunteers who battled communism without knowing it, 
we may be preaching the Bible while communicating something else in the background, potentially impeding our ability to witness. And that's not new. Think of conquistadors murdering people in South America and then handing the survivors a Bible. Missionaries to Native Americans who have to overcome our nation's legacy of expansion in order to minister to the people. Pastors in Congo who see our ties to bad leaders and wonder how a godly people can be party to oppression. Modern missionaries to American territories who preach that we are one in Christ, but that the people in those territories can't be full citizens like you and me. Black people in South Africa who see white American faith leaders like Jerry Falwell supporting the apartheid government. If our primary goal is to transmit the good news, what are we to do with our Americanism? When do we take it with us? And when do we leave it at home? Special thanks to Melanie McAllister. Her excellent book is The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, a global history of evangelicals since 1945. We barely scratched the surface. It's well worth the read. I'll include links to an engaging video of her covering more on this subject on the website at trucepodcast.com. I began the episode with Wendy Melillo and her great book, How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America history of iconic ad council campaigns. Truce is a listener-supported podcast. People like you are helping to fund this project that is asking questions nobody else is asking. If you'd like to be a part of what's happening on Truce, visit trucepodcast.com donate. My goal is to do this show full-time. That would mean more episodes, deeper research, and eventually more producers. And if you give via Patreon, you'll have access to an exclusive bonus episode featuring Melanie McAllister. The links are on the website at trucepodcast.com donate. I'm also including discussion questions based on this episode in your show notes right now and on the website. Some of you have written in to say that this show has sparked conversations in your family, and that's great. These discussion questions can help facilitate that. Thanks to everyone who loaned their voices to this episode, including Meg Gleisner of the Letters from Home podcast and Troy Frazier from the Revived Thoughts podcast. Subscribe to the podcast so you'll get every new episode and every bonus as it's released. If you like what you hear, look at my films Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls and my novel Cradle Robber. And as always, please rate and review this show in your podcasting app. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Steren, and this is Truce.